Sometimes we make decisions that take us down a path we don't anticipate. That's what happened to me back in 2021. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I'm the managing producer of podcasts at Canada's National Observer. That spring of 2021, I came across a story about a biologist in a remote corner of British Columbia fighting for wild salmon. The article was an excerpt from her about-to-be-published book, Not On My Watch. I bought the book, and when I turned the book's final page, I knew this story needed to be a podcast. But it took months to gather the documents, track people down, and travel to BC to talk to people. And as we know, time is money. We need your support to create more podcasts like The Salmon People. The easiest way to support us is to purchase a one-year subscription. Another powerful way to support our podcasts is to make a direct donation. Go to nationalobserver.com forward slash donate to make your contribution. This is Hot Politics, produced by Canada's National Observer. I'm David Mackay, the host and deputy managing editor of The Observer. In this podcast, I examine who has the best ideas on important issues, especially the climate crisis, and there's no shortage of important climate stories. In this last podcast of our first season, episode 16, Performance Politics. Pierre Polyev was the proverbial elephant in the room on two recent occasions. Aaron O'Toole gave his goodbye speech in the House of Commons in the final days of the parliamentary session. The former leader of the Conservative Party was first elected in 2012. He was Veterans Affairs Minister in Stephen Harper's government, a job many political observers said he did very well. O'Toole was surprisingly elected leader in 2020, but lost that job after Prime Minister Justin Trudeau won a minority government in 2021. There were concerns in the Conservative Party about his shifting positions on issues like the carbon tax and gun control during the election. And when Pierre Polyev became leader, O'Toole was frozen out, not given any critics' role. The other surprise was a former progressive Conservative Prime Minister praising the current Liberal Prime Minister. The main theme in both speeches was that divisiveness and nastiness, particularly on social media, is not just hurting public perception of politicians, but democracy itself. We begin today with an excerpt from Aaron O'Toole's June 12th speech. Instead of debating our national purpose in this chamber, too many of us are often chasing algorithms down a sinkhole of diversion and division. We are becoming elected officials who judge our self-worth by how many likes we get on social media, but now not how many lives we change in the real world. Performance politics is fueling polarization. Virtue signaling is replacing discussion. And far too often, Mr. Speaker, we're just using this chamber to generate clips, not to start national debates. Social media did not build this great country, but it is starting to tear its democracy down. We risk allowing others to set the course for this country because too many members 
on all sides of this chamber from time to time. I've been guilty of it. We're becoming followers of our followers when we should be leaders. Canadian families are in some cases finding it difficult to talk to each other about important issues. If we ever want to change this and begin to have respectful and serious discussions again, Mr. Speaker, that change needs to start right here in Canada's House of Commons. Because if we don't, Mr. Speaker, decades in the future, Canadians will point to this Parliament as the time when our national decline began. But colleagues, I don't think that will happen. I'm an optimist, and I hope you all reflect on some of these things over the summer. I believe in this great country and its people. And friends, I believe in each of you. It's been an honour to serve with you. Merci beaucoup. Thank you very much. Joining me to dissect Aaron O'Toole's speech to talk about by-elections and odd political alignments, I'm joined by Max Fawcett, lead columnist for Canada's National Observer and the host of my sister podcast, Maxed Out. Max, welcome to Hot Politics. David, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> it's great to have you. Okay, Aaron O'Toole's last address in the House of Commons certainly attracted a lot of attention. What did you think of it? I mean, I thought it was emblematic of his entire political career. Here is a man who I think has the right instincts and a good heart and waits far too long to show those qualities. You know, he said that he was clearly subtweeting Pierre Polyev here. Obviously, he was criticizing the liberals, but there was a lot in there that was directed, uh, if you read between the lines, at Polyev, you know, be, being a follower of followers. That sort of describes Polyev's leadership style to a T, you know, and, and the searching for the viral moments and looking for clips rather than real debate. I mean, that's all de direct hits on, on Polyev's battleship. But he never calls it out by name. He was very careful not to explicitly criticize the leader of his party. And I think that's sort of the O'Toole legacy is he was a decent man with some good ideas who was not courageous enough to say them out loud when it mattered. And arguably, during the last election, if he didn't go down a rabbit hole, which ended up costing him, maybe he would be the PM today. A hundred percent, he would be the PM today. And if he perhaps had said the right things at the right time, he might still be the leader of his own party, in which case he would be in much better shape to win the next election than Pierre Polyev. He talked a lot about the negative effects of social media and how those effects are playing out on politics. And although he was speaking in a federal arena, the House of Commons, you know, I couldn't help thinking that he was really addressing politicians writ large. So you're active in social media. I'm wondering how you think that that platform, that medium has influenced or affected political discussions. I think it has affected the lives of politicians more than the discussion. You're on Twitter, you deal with all sorts of flack and abuse, you know, whatever. It's, it is what it is. And it's worse for certainly for people of color and women than it is for me. I get off fairly light. I think the real impact, and he hinted at this in his conversation with Peter Mansbridge, where he said that before the last election that his team had identified, I think they said 20 star candidates, people of great accomplishment and claim that they wanted to run for the Conservative Party. And I think he said they only got two to agree to run. 
two out of 20 running for a party that had a very good chance of forming government, and you would think they would have a very good chance of sitting in cabinet, that's a big problem in terms of attracting the best people to public life in Canada. And he said one of the people that they had identified sat down with their husband and said, we can't expose our kids to this. We can't expose our family to this. And I think a lot of accomplished people, whether they're in business, science, other areas of public life, are going to look at politics and look at the cost of getting involved and specifically the cost of being on social media and say, yeah, you know what? Not worth it. I'll take a pass. You know, I want to serve my country. I want to do what I can to make changes, but I'll do it somewhere else because the price here is just too high. We're going to end up getting really substandard group of elected officials. We're going to get political lifers. We're going to get a lot of white men, to be honest, because we get less abuse. And, and I think for some reason, we're just more willing to endure it. You know, it's just not going to lead to a good outcome for anyone of any political stripe. This was conservatives who weren't running because of the toxic nature of social media. Imagine what it is for new Democrats. Imagine what it is for liberals. So this is a problem that, much like the foreign interference issue, I would be nice if all parties could kind of drop their shields a little bit and realize that this is a threat to the ecosystem they share and not just a threat to their particular party or their particular self-interest. But I don't see any sign of that. I mean, we can certainly hope for that, but something strange happens when you get into that arena, that political arena, and you don your political stripes. It just seems to turn folks who would be under normal circumstances, normal, rational, into rabid combatants. They see the Trump model. They see what works on social media. And I think it's pretty clear that Pierre Polyev is trying to do the same thing. I'm not saying that he's like Donald Trump because he's not. His values and views on a bunch of issues are very different. In terms of his tone on social media, he is very clearly imitating the sort of Trump style. And voters have a choice. Do they want to endorse that or do they want to punish it? I guess we'll get into this with the by-elections, but I hope we're going to see a slightly different outcome in Canada than we do in the United States. So you talk about Pierre Pauly using social media to attack his opponents. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh used TikTok during the last federal election, as you well recall, to get across his message especially to younger voters. The Liberals are also active. So I'm wondering, Max, how you would assess the party's use of this medium, generally speaking. It depends how you're grading their performance. If you're grading it on the standard of, is it good for democracy and society, I would give the Conservatives a failing grade. They routinely trade in conspiracy theories, nonsense about climate change, nonsense about federal policies. They misrepresent information to fit their worldview. I mean, liberals do that to a lesser extent, as do New Democrats, but I mean, conservatives are clearly the worst offenders here. Look at the thing that happened with the by-elections where there, a group called Democracy Watch, which sort of released a statement suggesting that they had a freedom of information request that came back showing the RCMP was investigating the Trudeau government for obstruction of justice with respect to the SNC-Lavalin thing, and all conservative MPs tweeted it out, post-media ran with it, and then the RCMP later in the day kind of put out a statement saying, whoa, 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 we're actually not investigating them for that. That's not happening. But by that point, it was, you know, it was way too late. I haven't seen any retractions or apologies from any of the people who were suggesting that it was a smoking gun. So I don't think what they're doing is good for democracy. But is it good for their partisan interests? Yeah, probably. It helps them raise a lot of money. It helps them keep their base mobilized. In terms of serving their sort of very narrowly constructed self-interest, I think they do it better than most. 
that's sort of the circle we have to square is being good at social media right now means being bad for democracy and bad for the health and wellness of society. And I'm not sure how we get out from underneath that. The NDP with the TikTok stuff, I mean, I, I thought it was kind of lame for a variety of reasons. It felt like pandering from just a purely kind of tactical perspective. Young people don't vote. I wish that was different. But in every election, I believe in my life and probably almost everyone's life, young people vote at a much lower rate than older people. And that dramatically influences outcomes. It also dramatically influences strategy. And so when you take a lot of your effort and aim it towards a group of the population that just does not vote, you're kind of setting yourself up to fail. And I think that's kind of been the story of the NDP. You know, the liberals are liberals. Like, they're pretty good at the fighting, but they're not as good as the conservatives. They're pretty good at the rage farming in their own sort of vein, you know, around abortion and gun rights, but not as good as the conservatives. And they still feel, I think, more of a sense of responsibility to the truth than conservatives clearly do. But they will also sort of bend things to their own agenda as the situation sort of allows. So to me, the problem is structural. And until we fix the sort of structural incentives, politicians are going to keep responding to them in what I think are some fairly bad ways. And then, you know, when we talk about the theme of nasty politics, surprise, surprise, former progressive conservative prime minister, Brian Mulroney, singing the praises of, wait for it, liberal prime minister, Justin Trudeau. Now, this happened when he introduced him as a keynote speaker in Antigonish, Nova Scotia, at the opening of the Atlantic Economic Forum. Mulroney's comments really, I think, echoed O'Toole's big-ticket accomplishments, not petty politics, et cetera, et cetera. Let's listen to a bit of what Mulroney had to say, and then I, I'd like to hear your take on it. The history is unconcerned with the trivia and the trash of rumors and gossip floating around Parliament Hill. History is only concerned with the big-ticket items, the big-ticket items that have shaped the future of Canada. Let me deal with some of the items that our guest speaker has had to deal with during his time in office. First, the pandemic. The greatest challenge that any prime minister has happened to deal with for Canada in 156 years. This is remarkable. And everybody says that our Prime Minister and our Premiers conducted themselves as well as anybody else around the world in, in dealing with this, and this is a big ticket item. Secondly, how about the renegotiation of NAFTA with Donald Trump? <laughs> the Government of Canada fulfilled its obligations to the Ukraine, and just last week we saw again, not for the first time, Prime Minister of Canada in Kiev with the president supporting all of his new initiatives. This is not a question of, as Trump says, well, I don't care who wins. Well, I care who wins, and the prime minister cares who wins, and it has to be the Ukrainians. So these are the big ticket items, some of them, that I think historians will reflect on, not the nonsense you read about in parliament, but the big serious stuff the history will deal with. As I was listening to that, Max, I couldn't help thinking that he was echoing, without naming names, a lot of the big themes that Aaron O'Toole was hitting on. And I'm wondering what your reaction to that speech was, that little excerpt that we heard. I think he's 100% right that historians will 
focus on the big picture issues, you know, climate change, the war in Ukraine, COVID, child care, child poverty, the, the Trudeau government has done really well. But he's also emblematic of a different time in politics. He came from a time when people could say nice things about their political opponents and and not be branded as heretics for doing so. You know, I'm sure that people within the Polya Brain Trust would say, oh, you know, he's old, he's senile, he's got all these ties to the Trudeaus, you know, he's part of the Laurentian elite, and never mind the fact that they might have something to learn from a conservative prime minister who won two of the biggest majorities in their party's history. They really just don't see any value or relevance for people like this. And I think that speaks volumes about where the party is at now. They have spent so much time and effort trying to bring the sort of PPC rebellion to heel that they have completely lost touch with the parts of their party that helped them win majorities in Ontario provincially, that helped them win majorities federally. From the perspective of what's good for the country, I think it's very bad because you need a good, robust, realistic, and I would say moderate opposition to any government. And right now we don't have that. And I think it is telling how far the Conservative Party today is from the comments that, that Mr. Mulroney made and from who he is and the things he believes. And they have to reckon with that. Now, these have been a rough few months for the Liberals, and I think that that is a, a gross understatement. <laughs> but you alluded to this earlier when you talked about the by-elections. They performed pretty well in the recent by-elections, winning handily in Manitoba and Quebec ridings, and the Conservatives won, as expected, in rural Ontario, though that race, I think, was closer than expected, and they win, they won in Manitoba, Portage, Lisgur. What do you make of the results, Max, especially considering the negative polls for the Liberals as of late? The wise thing to do with any by-election is to say, well, it doesn't matter. By-elections don't matter. They're, you know, it's just noise. David Moscroft, a former columnist for the Washington Post who was writing in The Walrus, and I respect David immensely. That was sort of his take that, like, we shouldn't read too much into this. The Liberals won where they were supposed to win. The Conservatives won where they were supposed to win. Onward, steady as we go. And I think that's a safe take, but I'm interested in the fact that for all the anger that is supposedly out there right now towards the liberals, and you know, as you said, they've had a rotten few months. They've blundered from one self-inflicted wound to the next. You'd think they would win by less. you think they would, certainly in, in the Winnipeg riding, which the conservatives have won in the past, by the way, under Harper, you would think that they would see some erosion of the vote share there. Nope. Nope, the Liberals in the late Jim Carr, now Ben Carr's riding, they increased their vote share. So that doesn't tell me that the anger that is out there is connecting to the ballot box. You would think, especially in a by-election, by-election is for motivated voters. Who's motivated? Angry people. And yet they didn't really show up. You know, as you mentioned, the Ontario riding, uh, I think it's Oxford, where there was some internal drama where Polyev essentially parachuted his own candidate into the riding. The XMP wanted his daughter to run there. He ended up endorsing the liberal candidate. I think the conservative vote, the margin of victory was reduced by 20%. If I was the conservatives, if I was Pierre Polyev, that would make me very nervous that a riding where I'd won or Mr. O'Toole won by 30 points, I could only pull it off by single digits. I think it was Philippe Fournier was saying basically like that by-election race will give the Liberals so much ammunition for the next federal election. That will be the big takeaway in time is, look at all the oppo they got out of this. And they're winning the battle against the PPC 
at the cost of losing the war of actually winning the election against the liberals. I don't understand what the strategy is here. They know they have to win ridings in Ontario, in Quebec, in Greater Vancouver. None of those ridings are going to be won by chewing through the PPC vote. It's going to be won by chewing through the NDP and liberal vote. And going after Maxime Bernier for attending a gay pride parade, that ain't going to do it. But I just can't help but think that the PPC will go away. And then come the general election, they'll pop right back up. And they're never going to go away to the extent that they need to, because the moment that Polyev pivots back to the middle, in comes Maxime Bernier saying, see, I told you, he's a phony conservative. And then they have to do that again. So the strategy doesn't make any sense to me. We'll see who's right in the end. But the, I think the by-elections will in time prove more consequential than people think right now. So Maxime Bernier, despite the fact that he finished a, a distant second place, isn't going anywhere. I don't think he's going anywhere because as David Coletto, Abacus Data CEO, pointed out on Twitter, you know, as long as they're fundraising the 500000 bucks or so a year they pull in and they can pay Maxime Bernier's salary and they can pay the other senior staffers, what incentive would they have to go away? I'm sure they'll keep whipping people up around the trans stuff, the LGBTQ stuff. There's always some issue for them to activate the most fringe, paranoid people in society and get them riled up. And as long as they can keep generating those fundraising dollars, and I think they probably can, what reason would they have to go away? So as we head into the summer, Max, I'm wondering what you'll be watching for on the federal scene. In your June 20th column, you hypothesized about a possible cabinet shuffle, writing that this isn't the time for minor nips and tucks, much less the sort of forced change, the resignations, the Judy Wilson-Raybould and Bill Morneau, for example, that has tended to inform previous shuffles by the Trudeau's liberals. If this government is going to live on for another term in power, it needs to perform some invasive political surgery. So is that what you think is going to happen? It's what I think should happen. Should and is are definitely uh, competing concepts here. But the Trudeau team has been very careful about shuffling the deck ever since they got elected. You know, they make changes when they're forced to whether it's Jody Wilson-Raybould, Bill Morneau, Jane Philpott, but they rarely move people around aggressively on their own accord. And, you know, there's a really interesting poll that put out the other day asking Canadians about their appetite for change. And 81% of people said that they want a different government. They want change. 31% didn't think that the Conservatives were the kind of change they wanted. There's still a big appetite out there for change. And so I think either the Liberals give... Canadians that change, or they will take it up in another form. Trudeau has said he's not going anywhere. Fair enough. I think that's probably the right decision. The leadership race at this point would be, I think, pretty damaging. But if that's the case, then they have to bring forward some new faces and new voices. And you know, they've got an opportunity right now because the current Liberal cabinet is firing on no cylinders. They're making mistakes all over the place. So, you know, as I said, get rid of Marco Mendicino you know, get rid of Ahmed Hussein, get rid of Marianne, get rid of the people who have made really big mistakes and maybe shuffle some of the other ones out and bring in some new faces. They've got some good people that are on the bench who could do some interesting things. They just need to give them some shine. And the big piece that I think sets everything in motion here is Christa Freeland. She has lost her deputy minister. He's gone back to the private sector, Michael Sabia. And, and I think she probably is looking for a way out. You know, there's that rumor about her trying to get the NATO secretary general job. I believe that comes up in July. So that would be a golden opportunity for them to to really kind of shuffle all the cards. They can't go small here. They can't tinker because 
if they present fundamentally the same ballot proposition as they did in 2021, they are going to lose. Trudeau, you know, when he came to power, came to power because he took a big risk. He said, okay, Tom Mulcair is trying to kind of coast into victory by promising he'll balance budgets. We'll run deficits. We'll do what it takes to give you the things you need. And people said, oh, I like the sound of that a lot more. And I think he needs to do a similar thing here. He needs to take a risk and, and really kind of shuffle the cards, give Canadians something new to vote for. Okay, I want to turn my attention briefly to provincial politics because they do figure, I think, prominently in whatever the outcome might be whenever an election is held. Let's talk a little bit about Ontario. Here's a bit of what Ontario Premier Doug Ford had to say about a headline-making contentious deal. I want to take a moment and address the recent reports about the federal government's ongoing discussions with Stellantis. I know everyone's anxious for the deal, and I am as, as well. I've been in regular contact with the federal government, including uh, recent discussions with the uh, Deputy Prime Minister, Christia Freeland, and Minister Champagne. And I just want to thank the Prime Minister for being a great partner. I'm urging them to do what's necessary to secure this, to make sure they secure their agreement. Doug Ford was talking about the reported tentative deal with Stellantis to save the Windsor battery factory. I'm just wondering, how important is the relationship between Ontario and the federal government? I think it's pretty big. If you're a liberal looking for things to hold on to as far as reasons for optimism, the, the existence of this government in Ontario, weirdly, is is something to feel good about because, number one, Ontario rarely goes the same way provincially as federally. It, it is almost like a metronome. Like if Ottawa is liberal, it tends to be provincially conservative and vice versa. And so, you know, that dynamic, I think, works well for the federal liberals. You know, and Doug Ford has been complimentary on a bunch of key issues. You know, he was pretty supportive on COVID. He was pretty supportive on, on electric vehicles and, and sort of industrial policy. He's not going to criticize the federal government for what they're spending here. And Quite frankly, neither is Pierre Polyev because he knows that there aren't many votes in making Ontario unhappy or threatening to, to not invest in what I think is a pretty crucial bit of industrial strategy. So that alliance, I think, keeps working for both of them, for both Trudeau and for Ford. And I, I really don't see any reason why either of them would depart from it anytime soon. The other good provincial relationship, such as it is, weirdly, is in Alberta. I don't think that on any level, Justin Trudeau and, and Danielle Smith get along. I think, you know, Danielle Smith has enormous disdain for the federal government and its policies on climate change. And, and I'm sure the federal liberals feel exactly the same way. But just as it's useful for Danielle Smith to have the liberals in Ottawa as, as kind of a boogeyman, so too is it useful for the liberals to have Danielle Smith in Alberta as a reminder to people of what a Pierre Polyev government would look like on climate change and on climate policy. And, you know, so when you know, the UCP comes out and says they're thinking of putting a new tax in place on electric vehicles, even though they just waive the fuel taxes for everyone else. That's a pretty useful example for the federal liberals to point to and say, this is what you're going to get with Pierre Polyev, a government that is fundamentally unserious about climate change, that wants to take us backward, that wants to kind of rig the game in favor of the fossil fuel companies. That's a pretty big card in the in the liberal deck right now, especially when they're trying to hold on to seats in Ontario and Quebec. I'm sure he would rather have liberal governments in those provincial capitals from a ease of dealing with perspective, but from a purely political perspective, probably couldn't have a better setup than he does right now. So if I follow that line of reasoning, then I'm just wondering, 
whether or not the Trudeau liberals use Doug Ford strategically to say, hey, look, we've got a really good relationship with the premier of the largest and arguably one of the most important provinces. You don't want to mess it up by going backwards. Do you see that playing out? I'm not sure they would be quite that explicit. Maybe not that blunt, but that certainly would be the subtext, I guess. I think he would definitely sort of point to the relationship and, and the things it's yielded for Ontario. I mean, I think it's interesting. There are people in Ford's orbit who have been very critical of Polyev, sort of suggesting that the way he does politics is not the correct way and that the way Doug Ford does them is. So I think they will definitely seek to sort of exploit that tension a little bit where they can. I think Alberta and Quebec are going to be the more interesting examples. Suddenly, the premier of Quebec has become actually quite quiet in his criticism of Ottawa, and, and I think it stands to reason he wants nothing to do with a Polyev government. Polyev is not going to help him develop hydro the way that Trudeau said he would. I think there's a bunch of issues where they're just really not aligned. And so I think you're going to see a weird sort of closeness between the conservative premier of Quebec and the liberal government in Ottawa, something that I don't think we've ever really seen before. I think you're right to keep an eye on the dynamics between provincial premiers and federal leaders, because I think they are going to weigh even more heavily on the next election than they have in, in recent ones. Well, certainly there's lots to keep track of, keep an eye on this summer as uh, the politicians hit the prototypical barbecue circuit. So this has been a very interesting way for me to cap off our first season of hot politics. And I guess it's only fitting that we ended up circling back to the very politics that, let's face it, help shape the policies that affect our everyday lives and our planet. So Max Fawcett, thank you very much for joining me on Hot Politics and have a great summer. Thank you for having me on again. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a nice way to wrap up our seasons with a bow and looking forward to season two. And, and yeah, enjoy your summer as well. That's it for season one of Hot Politics. Thank you all for listening. And please rate us a five on Apple. Tell your friends. We want everyone to find us. Hot Politics is produced by Canada's National Observer. Our managing producer for podcasts is Sandra Bartlett. Associate producer, Zara Kozema. Our publisher is Linda Solomon Wood. I'm David Mackay. Have a great summer, and we'll see you in the fall.